On my feisty days, I sometimes think maybe we should have named this instead of Servants of Christ, though I love the name Servants of Christ, maybe we should have called it John the Baptist Anglican Church. Perhaps some unknowing Baptist would have stumbled in and become a part of our congregation. Oh, come on, there's plenty of Baptist churches and plenty of Baptists, they can share a few, right? No, in all honesty, I've thought about it because John the Baptist appears so often in our gospel lessons that it almost seems like we're John the Baptist Anglican Church, Uh, but he's actually this many times. John is so important. One of the things that I think is important about the witness of John is that he links the Old Testament and the New Testament together. We live in a time and a place where people want to dissect the Bible and say, I'm just a New Testament Christian. I don't really get into all that yucky stuff in the Old Testament. And yet, here's John that, that will refuse to let go of either the Old or the New Testaments. He pulls the two together and says, no, all of this speaks to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So I love John for that. And uh, uh, John the Baptizer, John the Baptist as we know him. So this morning we start the, the season of Epiphany. Actually, we began it last week with our guest uh, preacher, Father Brian Kirick, who spoke about the ends of the earth. Who talked about planting 15,000 congregations in, in India, all over India. And boy, what a need there is and how, how he expanded our hearts and minds to see the ends of the earth. But the reality is that we live here, if you will, in metaphorically Jerusalem. We live in this place where we, we have the most influence over those we encounter here in Gainesville. At the university, at the hospital, uh, wherever it is you work and, and businesses and, and all, all, all the places you shop and you go and you minister and you speak. Those are the places that we bring Christ my church in Jacksonville, All Souls Episcopal Church, then All Souls Anglican Church, had a motto to know Christ and to make him known. It was actually stolen from a church in Darien, Connecticut, St. Paul's Darien. It was part of the renewal movement. And they had adopted that motto, to know Christ and to make him known. As I think about that motto, I often reflect on the fact that it seems to me that churches have different strengths, yes, and sometimes the strength of the church is to know Christ. They have just have an ability to be still and know that God is God and, and to dwell in him and go deep in, in understanding the scriptures. Other churches, it seems to me, are much stronger at making Christ known. They're about doing and going and being, being in the world and, and sharing the gospel, sometimes without a whole lot of depth. Um, once I was doing a funeral for a, it was a tragic young, young person died. She was in her 20s. I was doing the funeral. I didn't know if she was a follower of Jesus, and so I was being really diligent to preach about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And as I came out in all my robes and things, there was a man who I can only imagine because of my roots and background that he was of a Baptist background, and he, he, he was sizing me up. And I could tell that he wasn't certain that I was actually a Christian, mostly because of all this stuff that I had on. And so he was trying to figure me out, and I, I don't remember the whole conversation, but I, I, I tried to refer him back to the gospel message I had just shared, but I think, I think my dress just threw him off. Too, it was just too much. It was more than he could handle, and I get it. Uh, it's more than I can handle some days. Um, but um, actually, somebody stole, well, not stole, I misplaced, I don't know where it is, my other robe, which is why I'm wearing this different robe today, but anyway... But all I remember is the last thing he said to me, because I had said to him, well, are you a Christian? And he said, brother, I'm covered by the blood of the lamb. 
and he walked away. As if that said everything. <laughs> and, and, I, and, I, and I thought, wow, well, I know what he means by that, but for a vast majority of the people in Gainesville, Florida, they have no clue what you mean by saying you're covered by the blood of the Lamb, other than perhaps thinking that you're a part of some sort of satanic ritual or, or cult here. Oftentimes what we say doesn't communicate, but that's what we want to do as believers. We want to, we want to know Christ, but we also want to make him known, yes, to the ends of the earth, but also right here where we live and work and, and shop, et cetera, et cetera. This morning, I want to think with you for a few moments about John the Baptist and his witness to us of how we communicate the gospel, the good news of Jesus, in a way that brings people into living relationships with Jesus. Now, right off the top, I know that brings anxiety because here we are, it's Epiphany. We know Alex is going to be talking to us about the things we should be doing, the way we should be sharing Christ. Well, first and foremost, I want to stop and say that before all else, we cannot share Jesus Christ in a way that brings people into living relationships. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. I hope you know that. It's only by the the work of the Holy Spirit, yes, through us and other people, that anyone ever bows their knee and accepts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's a miracle. I've said that before. Um, it, It is nothing short of the grace and mercy of God when that happens. So that should relieve us. It's not up to us to save anyone. We're incapable of saving anyone. Only the work of the Holy Spirit. But he wants to work through us. He wants to use us, if you will, as signposts, as those who give direction, who point to Jesus Christ. And I believe that John does that in an amazing way. Now, the first thing to note about John is that John, first, before he seeks to make Christ known, he seeks to know Christ. Did you catch the fact that John hasn't figured out that Jesus is the Messiah? Now, just to remind you, John is the first cousin of Jesus, right? Elizabeth and Mary are are related. And so John and Jesus grew up as cousins, And yet Jesus is not revealed to John the Baptist as being Christ the Messiah. Which is interesting, right? Makes us wonder what happened in those years in Jesus' life between the age of 12 and the age of about 30. What went on there that, that he was concealed from John to not know? Now John was a little older. You know, maybe John left home, you know. Did his thing, went out into the desert and stuff like that. So maybe this wasn't around Jesus. But he had no clue. But here's John seeking to know Jesus more intimately. Seeking to know the Messiah. Seeking to know who he is. He begins from a place of no knowledge whatsoever. Complete ignorance. And yet he's seeking to know Christ. We have to seek to know him first before we bring him to someone else. We have to seek him for ourselves If you go back to the verses just before our passage, back to verse 21 and 22, you'll find that there are scribes and and Pharisees that that come out to Jesus, uh, to John the Baptist, rather, in the desert, and they're asking these questions. Who are you, John, and what are you doing? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet, meaning Moses? Or are you the Messiah? Now, it's interesting because if you think about the Mount of Transfiguration, 
Who are the two prophets that show up on the mount? Elijah and Moses. They, they've got a certain amount of knowledge. These guys are not are dumb. They, they understand, and, but yet they, they, they miss it. They, they don't themselves, the people who are sending them don't care enough to go personally and find out if John the Baptist is the Messiah. The people that are being sent say, We're just, we just need an answer to take back to the people that sent us. They're not personally involved. They're, they're, they're objective. They just want to know the, you know, they're like, they're like that old TV show from the 50s. Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. They don't really, are not in, subjectively involved in finding out the answer. John Stott, the famous Anglican evangelical priest, once was asked by a young man to answer a bunch of difficult questions, theological questions, things that stumped him about the Christian faith. And, and Stott stopped the man and said, wait a minute, let me just ask you this question. If I answer all your questions completely and thoroughly, if, if everything that you bring, throwing up as an obstacle is removed, will you bow to your knees and confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? And the young man said, well, no. There's nothing you're going to say that's going to change my mind. I just want to know. And John Stott said, well, then I'm not going to answer your questions. You see, we can't, we can't stand objectively at, lar- at arm's length. We can't somebody else, send somebody else to ask the questions for us. We have to personally seek to know Christ for ourselves. That is what John is doing. He's putting action to his, his faith by going into the desert and by baptizing in preparation for the coming of the Messiah, even though he doesn't know who he is, even though he is right under his nose. John is seeking to know Christ before he makes him known. He's going to make his famous saying in just a second, but before we get there, we remember also that John is living a life that's worthy of being followed. He has himself disciples. Andrew is one of them, the brother of Peter. We don't know who the other one is. I think it's probably John because John and James, the sons of Zebedee, John is the writer of the Gospel of John, and it's just like John and his humility not to put his name in the book. So I think, Father James can correct me later, but I think it's probably John that's with Andrew, along with, with John the Baptist, looking. I know it's confusing, John the Baptist and John the disciple, but they're there, and which is probably the other reason why they don't throw his name in there, see, strengthening my argument. But, but when, when John makes the proclamation, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth, the second time, we're told that Andrew and this other disciple, they follow after Jesus. I remember doing some intervarsity training at one point, and one of the things that the intervarsity folks said that, that one of the barriers for belief for most people is trusting the person who's sharing the faith in Jesus with them. And so our first job is to gain trust, the trust of the person. Are you trustworthy? I mean, they may not believe everything you believe, but are you trustworthy? First of all, are you going to be their friend even if they reject the Jesus that you love? People are looking to know if you're safe, in other words. And that becomes the first threshold of belief, to, to trust the person who's standing before them, bringing forth the faith. That's something for us to all think about. John was seeking to know Christ. Before he made him known. He, he was stepping out in faith even when he had zero knowledge of who the Messiah actually was. 
even though he was right under his nose. Secondly, having said that, secondly, we have to proclaim. We have to speak. We have to say Jesus. We have to mention his name to people. John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, what I want to say here to make sure you understand is that John communicates the entire counsel of Scripture. What what I mean by that? John is not simply just saying one, he's not saying go to Isaiah 53 and read about the suffering servant. Boom, here he is. What is John doing when he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? John is synthesizing all of the Old Testament scriptures that have ever talked about sacrifice and redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And he's synthesizing them into one statement. Now, if you're sharing Christ with somebody and you say, you know, covered with the blood of the lamb, you know, whatever that guy said to me, you know, or, or even if you say, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, people can go to the Old Testament and say, there's no place where those exact words appear in the Old Testament. Remember, John's an Old Testament prophet. The New Testament hasn't been written yet. When he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he's not pointing just simply back to Exodus 12, but he's bringing all of this together. If you go to Exodus 12, which happens to be our Old Testament passage, it's in the insert that you've got there, you'll notice that there's no mention of the forgiveness of sins in Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 is the the account of the plagues that God, Yahweh, is pouring out upon Egypt because of the oppression and slavery of his people, Israel. And God sends Moses, first and his great prophet, to proclaim that, that, that Pharaoh is to release Uh, Israel from from captivity. Nine plagues have already occurred and Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He is not willing to release them. Then before the tenth plague is announced, or as it's being announced, the writer uh, Moses of Exodus stops and begins to explain this, this celebration, this ritual of Passover rite that the people of Israel are to celebrate throughout the generations, which is why it references telling our children when they ask, what is this sacrifice about? What is this ritual about? You share with them, this is what happened. And God begins to explain that he's going to, he's going to bring his judgment on Egypt by killing the firstborn. Every human and every animal of the Egyptians will be killed, the firstborn. But because Israel will follow God's instructions and they will They'll sacrifice a lamb, a spotless lamb, and they'll apply that blood to the doorpost and the lintel of, the, of their houses. The, the angel of death will pass over them, and they will not be killed. That's the reason it's called Passover. Angel of death passes over. But as you read the account, you realize that what's also being said there is that this is how God is going to bring about the redemption of his people. By this, this, the blood of the lamb applied to the doorpost, God is going to use this judgment on Egypt to bring his people out of slavery into the promised land. So you get pieces, but you don't get the forgiveness of sins. 
You have to t- go to Leviticus to look at that. Leviticus talks about sin offerings and the off- offering of sacrifices of, of lambs or goats being sacrificed for sin offerings. And, and Leviticus 16 talks about the Day of Atonement and, and putting the, the sins of Israel, the whole, the whole people group, onto this one animal that's sent out into the desert and a, a lamb that's sacrificed in, 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 in memory of that. You go to Isaiah 53 and you read about a suffering servant who is like a lamb led to the slaughter, who did not open his mouth. By his wounds we are healed. Many of us know that Isaiah 53 passage really well. You you take all of these passages, you uh, you take Abraham with Isaac, who's supposed to offer his son, and God stops him, and and there's a a lamb caught in the thicket, and God says, no, don't offer your son, Isaac. Instead, take this, this, this ram that's in the thicket and sacrifice it. When you bring all of this together, it begins to paint a picture that, that, that God had the children of Israel performing these sacrifices like others, uh, other uh, peoples around them, but in, in particular ways with a particular focus as, as atoning for their sins. And then, you have, and then you have Psalm 40 that David talked about and before we sang it today. And what, is, what, is Psalm, what does the psalmist say in Psalm 40? Perhaps it's David. Burnt offerings and sacrifices you've not required. Did anybody, did that strike you as anybody? It's like, well, what was all the Old Testament offerings for? Well, it was, it was to paint a picture. It was to lead people. But the psalmist comes to a point where he realizes that, that there's no way that the blood of, of, of sheep and goats can possibly atone for the sins of the people. There must be a greater sacrifice. Hebrews picks up on this. The writer of Hebrews actually quotes Psalm 40 and says, Sacrifices you've not required, but a body you have made for me. And then he begins to talk about Jesus being like the Lamb of God who gives his life for the sins of the world. You see, you see what John is doing in there? He is, he is bringing together biblical theology from, the, from Genesis all the way through Malachi. And he is bringing it to bear on, on who Jesus is and what he's come to do to be like the Lamb of God, like these sacrifices of the Old Testament, except this is a sacrifice that needs to be done only once, for all, forever. As Jesus hangs on the cross, the perfect Lamb of God, he does give himself as the sacrifice for sins of the whole world. John will write in his epistle, he'll, he'll talk about that, the, the, the most Famous and most profound is the, is, the, is the throne scene from Revelation chapter 5. If you haven't re- seen it lately let me just, or heard it lately, let me just remind you of what John sees. John, the same guy that writes the gospel and the epistle, also writes the, the Revelation. And, and he, he says that he, he's there and, and, um, and, and the, the Ancient of Days says, Who is worthy to open the soul, the scroll and break the seal? And, and John begins to cry. And, and then all of a sudden, um, they, say, they, say, um, they said, No one is found worthy to open the, the scroll. And the one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David, 
has conquered, and so he can open the scroll and the seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which the seven spirits of God sent into the earth. Of course, John is speaking metaphorically. He's, he's using allegory. He's using, he's using a poetic language to speak. But he goes on to say, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open the seal, for you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation to make them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and glory and wisdom and honor and might. Amen, amen. We proclaim the full counsel of God. Now, I know I just I gave you a lot, but I, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to understand how complex that saying is, behold the Lamb of God. Don't just tell people you're covered by the blood of the Lamb. Explain it to them because they're not going to get it. And they're intelligent people. They're going to poke holes if you say, show me where that says that in the Old Testament. Not in one place, but it says it all over, cover to cover, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, and if we're diligent to seek the Scriptures, which is why I'm encouraging us all to be reading Scripture and studying Scripture together and individually, that we would know the full counsel of God, for by so we can truly bring the person of Jesus to people and bring them to a place where the Holy Spirit can bring them into a living relationship. Well, we bring them the full counsel of God. We seek to know Christ before we make him known. We point them to Jesus. I, I, I come back to this simple truth over and over again as I hear the complex situations and the complex objections that people have to the gospel, the good news of Jesus. I, I often have to find myself reminding people, bring them to Jesus. Take them to the Gospels. I love what InterVarsity does. They invite people. They print out one, one scripture passage on a plain sheet of notebook paper, not an intimidating Bible. And they take that piece of paper and they look at it with them and they read the words of Jesus and they study what he said and what he did. And they, allow, and they ask questions of it and allow Jesus to speak into the hearts of the men and women that they're trying to reach. We bring them to Jesus. We point them to him. John says, I have seen and I bear witness that this is the Son of God. Why, did, why could John say that? Because he had seen the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, come upon Jesus. For truthful, there was a time when our spirit was quickened and we knew that in fact Jesus truly was the Son of God, that he was exactly who he said he was. And that busted through all of our objections and our intellectual blockades, and, and we were convicted and we found ourselves on our knees in humility saying, behold the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. It has to be, it has to be confessed for, by each person we can't do it, but we can bring them to Jesus. Don't you love what Andrew did? Andrew just goes and finds Simon and goes, Simon, we found the Messiah. And, and he brings Simon to Jesus. 
John is asked these questions. Who are you and what are you doing? What if someone asked us those same two questions? Do we have an answer for them? Who are you? What are you doing? Are you pointing people to Jesus Christ? Are you seeking to know him? Are you studying the full counsel of scripture that you can share it with people that they would understand the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But are you then pointing them back to Jesus? And I have to say, because I'll get in big trouble, and then you pray. Right, Elena? Then you pray. You pray, you pray, you pray that God would do the miracle once again and bring people into a living relationship. We are in the season of Epiphany. Oh, let's let's... Let's seek to share Christ, to to know him and to make him known. Amen? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, make it so, Lord. Amen.